0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com forthewild for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit forthewild.world donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Bonnie Moore a genderqueer travel writer who explores the relationship between race, place, and power.
1: Even through story, we're consuming place, and that is inextricable from consuming place.
0: Bonnie's work has appeared in CNN Travel, Fodors, Afar, and Teen Vogue, and in Outside the XY, Queer, Black, and Brown Masculinity, and the upcoming Where We Stand, Brown and Black Voices Speak the Earth. Follow them on Twitter at Bonnie underscore Amore and on Instagram at Bonnie Amore. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me today. Your work is so expansive, you know, touching on issues from extractive tourism to climate change and disaster capitalism. So I'm really excited to weave all these threads into our conversation
1: today. This is so great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, as a starting point, I think it would be really helpful to unpack common narratives of place and travel as a genre. Many of your articles speak to the historical tradition of travel writing that was forged during the period of European imperial expansion and exploration, quote. <laughs> so could you begin by sharing why we must understand this genre as a subjective one with its roots in colonialism And who defines common historical and contemporary notions of travel, mobility, and movement?
1: We already know who defines it, right? Just like who defines much of the world and the way it works, much of the story that we are given, especially, you know, I'm on Turtle Island, and I just want to, you know, acknowledge I'm on Matinnecock and Canarsie land here in Queens, New York. That is the story that we get, you know, what is the old adage He who wins tells the story. It's very, that's such a paraphrasing of that term. But, you know, the conqueror gets to tell the story of the conquered. And we see that all encapsulated in travel writing more, I think, than in kind of any other world and travel in general is when all these delineations of power just open up and it's unavoidable. And this elephant in the room of of travel culture that we just are not going to talk about. I mean, more and more we are talking about it. But, you know, there's a little bit of a democratization of this, especially on so- social media I'm talking more about. But, you know, the same folks are in power, the ones telling the story. And, you know, Faith Adeli, a, a mentor, she's a travel author. She travel- She teaches uh, travel writing for BIPOC. And she says, you know, this is all political because travel writers tell the story of the world. So that is a huge responsibility. And it's usually advertorial, right? We're basically selling place. And not thinking about that in a critical way, not thinking of ourselves as a part of the world and our place in the world in this critical way and how that impacts the stories we tell. So our whole lives are subjective, you know, just being on this earth is a subjective experience. But in travel writing, you know, you have this dominant narrator who is usually white, who is usually moneyed, who is usually Western and English speaking and all these things. and you know, that is not, that is such a, what is the word? It's just a delusion, a little bit of a delusion. You know, are we really getting the real story of this world when we're looking in the travel writing section of a bookstore? Absolutely not. We're getting a story of this travel writer, you know, when I'm reading travel writing, just like, you know, a lot of our experiences, what we're really reading about, or how I feel is I'm not reading about this place. I'm reading how this person. Use this place. Their writing tells me more about the person than it does about the place. And, and you can say that about my writing, you can say that about anybody. That's just how we should look at ourselves more. But this invisible narrator who is there just to see, just to objure, observe, and, and is you know assumed to be objective, because often we don't put ourselves in this story. And there's a lack of transparency. Especially with people who are not marginalized. A lot of time, marginalized writers have to just, there's expected of like, I'm, you know, BIPOC, I'm queer. And you're going to see that in the beginning because we are just so used to being othered, to, you know, being, we're not dominant. So we're going to put ourselves in the story. And that affects the way I travel in all these ways. Like travel writers of color are often asked, you know, what is it like to be, you know, black in blank? What is it like to be, you know, this in blank? And it's really like everyone should be talking about race because race, defines you know all of our experiences in the world but you know you're just going to ask the other of like how that affects them rather than how whiteness you know empowers people to take advantage of you know this history and and being empowered by this history of colonialism and white supremacy and other forms of domination I don't want to just talk about race and yeah there's not much of looking at that And so we, you know, we kind of take advantage of the stories that are already there and the dynamics that have been put in place for hundreds of years, as you said, you know, through this uh, period of imperial expansion. And, you know, there's not much of a difference. When you open books up, it's just not much of a difference. And it's just that gaze is so embedded into the ways that we see the world and not from far away, you know, where we are right now, like I'm talking about the land I'm on right now. And if we don't have that relationship to where we are right now and understanding how our identities is so uh, influenced by place, you know, um, then how are we going to go far away and just be like this d- detached, you know, person who has, you know, no identity. I'm just the observer observing the other in this anthropological way. So travel writing is, is definitely kind of in a continuation of these kind of zoological, anthropological, colonial stories of I am this year and this is the scene. And that dynamic definitely, you know, is we feel it and we see it in our travel writing today, often no matter who is writing it.
0: Yeah, it's so important to understand the objective versus subjective discussion. And I just don't think we can be objective, (laughs) whether it's in travel writing, science for the most part. We're bringing who we are, our experiences, our memories, our traumas, everything into everything we do. I don't know how we can separate that. And, uh, yeah, I I think that's such an important part. And as you've begun to name the imperial gaze of travel writing extends into present day representations of place as products and commodities. And as someone Analyzing these visual and written texts, I wonder if you could speak to what is lost when places are portrayed through the lens of white desirability, as well as the pervasiveness of this marketing in blogs, advertisements, television, Instagram accounts, etc., since the travel genre has really proliferated and taken on a new form and shape through online media.
1: Everything, I feel, we're only getting one. You know part of the story and that part of the story is already defiled. I mean, you know who says It's not just about white people, right? It's about whiteness, but who says that this is the experience? You know and when we look at whiteness and and white supremacy There is an inherent detachment from land from a self and and from culture You know a sense of self and a sense of one's belonging to a place That's what white supremacy did when it was forged, you know through chattel slavery and the transatlantic uh, slave trade and genocide, um, and displacement, and you know, forced reeducation, and then kidnapping, and, and of uh, indigenous people, and um, which you know, of course, inf- include people from the African continent. And we're we're kind of stepping into these shoes of this, you know, all-knowing, you know, kind of omnipotent uh, gaze that is like, you know, who says that this is the story? And if that's the story, it's it's a um, distorted one so we're not getting a lot of it um you know we know how publishing works we know how writing works this whole industry is not diverse and so you have a bunch of people trying to get new stories in and trying to put you know put themselves more in and get the mic you know so people are disempowered from, you know, having their stories, you know, um, disseminated in these more widespread ways. So when, I, you know, in my experience, when I'm teaching travel writing to BIPOC, or I'm in these, you know, small workshops, or in these spaces, and, and like I, I mentioned Faith Adeli before, being in her workshop, or, or, you know, whatever, I'm able to hear these stories from BIPOC of travel and all of our different entryways into it, whether it's like homegoing, you know, returnee, you know, refugee stories, you know, exile stories, all of it is migration stories that are not considered travel writing. And and I just get everything I need from there because I love travel writing. So let's take this back because there's so much power in this. Um, and the people of BIPOC have been, you know, writing travel for so long, even, you know, before colonization. So um, that's out there. You know erased people be like I I don't see this this doesn't exist and I was probably like that in 2011 2012 and then I You know discovered <laughs> to use that nasty word the canon of BIPOC Travel writing so that kind of did a little bit of a healing process and I realized I had so much to learn and catch up with So what is lost is is a lot of that connection to each other the I'm not saying there's a right way to tell a story but the more we get, the more voices we get, the more that we can kind of feel, especially people from that place, right? And you know, like How often do indigenous people tell the story of like traveling around their own place and travel writing? When you see that in the bookstore section, on in, in the travel section of bookstores, right? Or, or when you're Googling something, you know, all of travel writing is not just told from, you know, the side from people who are from there. That's just not what travel writing is considered to be. Um, so we lose a lot. and especially because travel writing has been wielded as a tool of uh, settler States. It's just a capitalist enterprise, right? You know, they're not going to have the interests of the most oppressive oppressed people in their places. You know, the interest of getting, you know, appealing to a foreign audience uh, and, you know, getting money from them, getting them to come and just kind of like hustling, you know, an indigenous culture or stereotype of it to, you know, bring people in and consume, they're not gonna have those interests at heart. Um, They actually have, you know, there's a vested stake in whiteness and travel writing and in tourism of not telling those stories and not having those people at the table. And maybe this whole industry shouldn't work because if that's, you know, inherent part of it, of silencing and erasure and displacement that tourism causes. And that's why, you know, moving toward decolonization and reparations and abolition and repatriation of land or rematriation of land, is how we're going to get like that holistic experience of place and of people that I think a lot of travel writers or travelers purport to want. But if this is the way we're going, you know, about it, that's, that's just ain't it. Even if you take out some words, even if you, you know, doing some, you know, quote unquote ethical travel stuff, um, it's not getting us there. I feel so that is what is lost as far as social media. I don't think much has changed at all. And that is really sad um I'll, like i said you know 2013 2014 i i mean i got on twitter at that time you know i started being more public you know of course because i had started freelancing so i had to have more of a a public kind of social media presence and i didn't have any or interest in any before that so it was really cool to find you know other folks talking about this stuff even if they weren't travel writers it's just you know people like me from places who hadn't traveled much who you know, I include gentrification and displacement within these stories of decolonizing travel culture. And we're talking about, you know what it's like to be in a place in Ecuador and see these people come in. There's all this uncomfortable, tense situations uh, when I'm traveling in my own country. And so I, I got a lot of, you know, uh, hearing from people who are having this experience. It was all there, and it was just not. Academic and it was just not people who are, you know, travel writers who, w- who would consider them to be and a lot of BIPOC Shun the label of travel writing uh, because it has been so historically exclusive so I think social media has allowed us to talk more to each other and And particularly in the travel world and non travel writing just, you know, on Instagram You can go and every single kind of traveler is there you know, you have the indigenous hikers and the fat hikers and the Muslim folks, and you have like all these BIPOC doing all this cool stuff. But as far as travel literature goes, that's not really changing a lot. You know, maybe you see more like freelance pieces a lot more, especially after this summer when a lot of magazines were like, you know what, Black people exist all of a sudden, and now we want to publish our stories. You know, no offense, I think some great came out of that. But Eh. um, so when we look at social media and social media influencing, you know, we have this ability to actually, you know, leave these, you know, Condé Nast and, and the National Geographic and travel and leisureness of it all. And, you know, write in a way that is not, you know, pure advertorial, pure advertising um, for corporations that put people, you know, travel writers out on fam trips, which are PR trips, you know. And um, we haven't taken it, folks haven't taken advantage of that as much as they could. You know, if you're an influencer, you get sponsored. How is that different from something you would see in, you know, this huge corporation's, you know, Royal you know, Caribbean cruise lines or whatever? You have this, this power to kind of tell this in a different way. But I don't see that happening. I, I see, you know, especially mainstream um, social media travel world as a, con- a complete continuation of what we're seeing in magazines and what we've seen in books before that, like so long ago, the white saviorism that is on display, the anthropological national geographic of the other on display within travel photography on social media. It is so much the same, and that's really disappointing, but it is not surprising.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've also clarified that women and femmes are particularly targeted in the fetidization of place. Can you
1: speak to this as well? This is how colonization works and how genocide works. You know, we again, we don't have to go far away to see how this happened. I mean, I believe, you know, the earth or La Pachamama is a feminine being. And here we are, you know, pillaging, you know, ecocide, genocide and femicide, they're not separate from each other, it's all at once. Um, And so I mean look at, you know, if you're you're reading this or even talking to elders or whatever the case may be and and, you know, missing indigenous women. I mean, you know, these are the most targeted people and why because it's a form of domination over place and over land. You have people who, you know, are holding on to you know, quote unquote endangered languages. You you have people who you know within their bodies and and with each other are carrying a part of their land even if they have been displaced or you know deported whatever the case may be and when you Harm a person when you you know sexually abuse a person and when you kill them, you know trigger warning for all of this You know, you're also kind of killing this culture. You're you're there's so much that is lost um, And that is not the point right you, this is harming humans and it has been you know for since 1942, so like, I mean, since 1492. Um, so, you know, like this, this is a full-on attack on women. Like, again, you know, I'm not gonna go through all these things that have happened, but we read, we listen, and you see these horrible stories of how these settlers came in and what they did from town to town. It's disgusting. And we to see the same in chattel slavery, um, how black women and indigenous women are singled out as like we can't dominate a place and until we dominate your body and it's the same thing um, when we see this in travel writing and in travel media um, through advertising through photography through the whole you know visual aesthetic of it you know there's all these statistics on it when when folks have studied um, the advertising of how indigenous women black women are really the visual you know logo for a place you know i mean jamaica the sexualized you know kind of like really selling the sex worker and the sex um tourism of it all you know through a woman's body we don't often see them looking toward the camera they're all usually looking away we usually see men um more looking toward cameras and being centered um we don't know the names of these women and you know femmes non-binary people Uh, These are just static images. We look at Hawaii and I mean, come on, the hula girl, you know, this this topless chick who is just so sexualized and completely, you know, out of context, cultural tradition of hula. I mean, I think there's another word for it um, that is actually more of an original word that I, I actually don't have. I apologize right now. That is just she could be anybody she looks the same, you know, she's not an actual person So, you know, she has to she is Hawaii and when we go there when those land was quote-unquote annexed Not so long ago and what continues to happen to Hawaii through, you know militarism, you know, this is the US military plus tourism, the two biggest industries there um, You know, it starts with women and it kind of ends with women uh, With how they're treated and how we how they're sold as part of the product of place So, um, yeah, this is, it's not just the imagery, right? I want to bring in the the military part of the militaristic part of it and the violent part of of settler colonialism. And just looking at it completely separating and it just be like smiles and fun and sun, these cruises and all-inclusive resorts. It's just a complete continuation, if not a tool that is inseparable from the project of domination. I mean, we need travel writing for these ideas and these processes of domination and colonization and progress to continue. That is intentionally the point of the woman, the femme, the non-binary, you know, feminized person as being, you know, the face of the product that is placed to further colonization. And that is very real as we see it today.
0: Thank you so much to speaking of that. I was going through my memory thinking of all the images I've seen of the, yeah, this sexualized woman who has no name, but it's just her body and her smile inviting, alluring people to this place. It's, um, yeah, it's definitely been burned into my psyche for all these years of conditioning and this very strange and um, yeah, destructive dominant culture. And I also think about how this settler mindset revolves around the fantasy of bringing the far away close up. And that is the tourist desire to appear close to place. This yearning drives people deeper into wild spaces like nat- natural reserves, wildlife parks, and remote backcountry areas, you know, hoping to catch a glimpse of say, the last grizzly bear, or take a photo in front of a disappearing glacier, you whether know, by a cruise ship or car or trail. And this kind of travel can greatly impact fragile ecosystems, leaving behind a path of human waste, soil erosion, overfished seas, polluted water, etc. And so I'm wondering, what does the fetidization of land and the spectacle of wildlife say about our insatiable cultural hunger to connect
1: with place? I don't think that it has to do with connecting with place at all. I think it has to do with dominating place. And, you know, we see it's just another tick off of uh, another country, another, you know, stamp in my passport, you know, people, you know, brag about this. Um, so I don't think it's about connecting with place if if we, you know, truly wanted to, we wouldn't go through this way. And I don't mean to demonize anyone who travels, I travel, but again, we're not really, if we're not really looking critical at these ways, then we know we're not understanding our, just how problematic our places are within this. So the zoological gaze, I mean, we're talking about animals. I mean, going back, you know, to genocide, to the time of human zoos and not to genocide, but colonization and Creating the other and their environment as this kind of theme parky thing through um, human zoos, where you know, you know, black folks were were taken and put on display as these animalistic beings that were just so spectacular. It was just a whole spectacle, spectacle. Excuse me, of culture um, where people, indigenous folks, we see you know throughout the world were brought to France, to United States, to Belgium, to all these places and put on display in the circus act of, you know, you're not in your place, but we're gonna put this little fenced in area and put little teepees and you're gonna be there and just like pretend to go about your life. Like a, you know, museum kind of just like one of those, you know, kind of exhibitions if you see in you know, the Museum of Natural History. So that gaze of just equating someone, not equating someone, because you know non-human animals are are great, you know shout out to them. At it. It's, it, but it, but you're dehumanizing you know folks. Um, that is the whole point of the human zoo. And I think it's, I think it has a lot to do with travel today. Um, when you go places, people are kind of performing their cultures in very real ways. Um, when we see from place to place, again, you know you have the hula dancers in every all-inclusive resort. You, you, you maybe go to the Southwest or New Mexico, and you go to these places. And you know you'll have native folks put on a dance or put on some clothes that they may not wear every single day anyway. So it is a dehumanization and a kind of demodernization of kind of like putting native folks, and I'm including you know black folks in this uh, encapsulated, you know, distorted story in our minds of like just living in the past of like this land before time. But that is what's really sold in travel media a lot. is just people in native garb, which a lot of folks wear native stuff. And that's, that's great, you know, traditional clothing. But if it's put on as a show just for the foreigner, that is not a culture. And that is not truly connected to a place that is like viewing it, looking at it, looking at the Maasai doing the Adamu, the, you know, the jumping dance and just going about our way. Um, so that is, That is dehumanizing, that is not wanting to see them as a fully fledged people and their experiences today, especially because I was touching on earlier, settler states do not, you know, they want this to happen. They don't want people to connect people in this true way, where how often do you hear, you know, folks, when you are traveling, actually connecting with them, it's more over a transaction, rather than anything, how is that a, a true experience? Um, so I believe that, you know, through those these kind of continuation of the human zoo and what this actually does still exist, like people um, are put on display and uh, against their will. And, yeah, it's about dominating them through kind of bringing them down from uh, from humanity and dehumanizing them, which is the point of de- of colonization.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's all so good to hear this and just kind of be uh, grounded in what you're saying, because it's true. And it's easy to overlook this for some of us who are just trying to get a quick trip out of town and not consider all of these pieces. And um, yeah, drawing from what you've shared around the politics of representation I'd like to think about extractive tourism as an extension of the colonial project on the ground. You know, there are so many entry points into this conversation, though, one that comes immediately to mind is the vast economic inequality that undergirds our fast growing international tourism industry. And I think many travelers might think that the money they're spending is helping boost local economies when they travel, but you've shared that in a tourism-dependent country like Thailand, nearly 70% of all money spent by tourists leaves the country, a figure that's even higher at 80% for the Caribbean. So could you speak to the business model of tourism as extraction and perhaps the ways it mirrors the dynamics of resource colonies
1: yes i mean even through story we're consuming place and that is inextricable from consuming place the resources the water you know um the people and their time and labor their energy i mean that is an extraction i do feel like I think with black folks in particular, you know The part of white supremacy is just extracting their energy and their labor um, Through all of these emotional ways spiritual ways and and just draining folks of energy to live their own lives and self-determine Which is you know how we see a, This is what decolonization is about we need the tell the self-determination uh, For folks to really tra- tell the true story of place and their experiences within it and if you can't like First of all, access the beach in front of your house because this all-inclusive, you know, put in these rules that are just like, you can't, this is our land, this is our stretch of beach. When, you know, people's homes are bulldozed in Jamaica over and over again to put in these resorts and have the prime real estate of living in front of the beach or, you know, visiting a beach that is that is taking something from them and that is taking the land. That that is colonization. Like it's it's just still happening through tourism. So This is a way that land itself is still being taken and and people's energy and labor is still be taken and paid so less. If you're talking about the inequality when it comes to money, I mean, come on, Google, Google, like, how do I travel for cheap? Google budget travel. How do I live afar, you know, for cheap? How do I, you know, become a travel writer? All of it will say, go to some place where people are poor and live like a king. That is how you do it. You don't have to pay someone, you know, $300 to do like this whole like four week coaching thing of like, this is how you break into travel writing or this is how you live as an expat. It's just go somewhere where people are globally poor, where, you know, the, the you know, the economy is just like not as, you know, the, not this uh, developed world or whatever the hell we're going to talk about, we're going to use those terms, um, economy. If your dollar can stretch longer, then you can live like a king anywhere. And um, that is supposed to be some sort of hack. And it's not, it's just you're globally rich and people are globally poor within that context. So people are taking advantage of that dynamic, BIPOC all the time as travelers and expats, taking advantage of that dynamic so that you can live there and can, you know, in this socially way, do live above people in in a higher class. Um, and enjoy those privileges and turning people into a service class, which also gentrification does um, You know who's taking care of people's kids who's walking their dogs who's cleaning their houses who who's you know washing their dishes all these things um, When you you know, you have an expat culture or tours tourist zone um, It's or tours ghetto Everyone around it is not living for themselves. is not self-determining. They might this just lessens the ability to um, strengthen local industries and economy for oneself and just turning it into this economy that is for a foreigner So, I mean, what is the word for that? I mean, is it imperialism? Colonialism, there. there is like a specific word I don't want to just put all these into a mishmash But um, that's how domination works. I mean, how is that really different from we're looking at like spice trades or or anything else? You know, this economy is for someone else and not for you. And we don't like to talk about child labor or sex tourism. We just see kids, you know, selling souvenirs to us and are like, oh, that's very cute. Like all of our kind of, you know, pseudo I'm talking about the United States in particular is kind of pseudo liberal thing, especially with travelers who are I'm a traveler, not a tourist go somewhere. And then that social justice mind just goes on vacation, (laughs) literally. And we just want to be a part of this experience. I mean, you're going to go to a hotel, you want to go to a jacuzzi, you know, you want to go to Indonesia, you want to go to Bali, and you want to have this whole, I, I don't know, all of these kind of, I'm talking more about the, you know, alternative spiritual tourist you know, nature, holistic, whatever that whole world is. And who purport to want these things. And then you're, you know, you're getting in this big tub of water when you know this, this, this resource is dwindling. I mean, it's getting stolen from people so that you can just soak. When you could do that at home. I'm not saying this is happening everywhere. I'm singling out Bali. And the, the, the water shortage is terrible. Um, and it just gets used more and more. I think that figure is 80%. And I just, I want to you know, point out that the figures that you used before that I pointed out in other pieces are like pretty old like really old, I'm talking, I think it's like 2000 or so. So think about how um, the economy has changed since then globally. Uh, So people getting poorer. And when we go places as expats and have expat culture and uh, tourist cultures, we are keeping people from upward mobility. We are keeping them in that service industry. Um, We're not asking them how much they're getting paid like there is not any of that kind of like working-class solidarity when you travel You are of a higher class period. I mean that is different when you are black. Definitely It's definitely different when you are like a BIPOC woman or feminine non-binary person Um, However, it is a little different to a lot different (laughs) I mean, you know when it comes to white folks, you are treated as VIP wherever you are on earth, okay Even if people feel like they're fetishized um it's it's not because whiteness can't be a fetish it is dominant um maybe sexualized because whiteness signifies wealth um but yeah that that dynamic of i can just take because i brought i bought a ticket like i paid my money i want to get my money's worth i want to do all these things it keeps people in economic instability uh tourist economies are so famously unstable look at covid you know people had to mexico ecuador other places you know puerto rico Um, open themselves prematurely to uh, foreigners, tourists, because they needed that money, even though people are like dying and super sick. And, you know, again, you know, there is this story in travel writing of this is what we want, we want to connect to people, we love culture, and that whole Mark Twain quote about, you know, travel being, um, I guess, the opposite of, you know, intolerance, and these kinds of in bias and stuff. But, when we look at it, no, I mean tourists are acting a mess in these places. So when you become economically dependent to a foreign power, how is that, you know, empowering people? That is that is such a lie. You know, you don't we, we see this with the language and I'm gonna end here, I know I'm talking a lot about um, supporting black owned businesses. No one supports black white owned businesses, right? We just buy. And we just assume, you know, this is all men own all these corporations, white people own all these corporations that we're buying from all the time. But we're going to go out of our way and think we're doing a charitable thing by paying black people for things. That's just how labor works. You pay people, you get something. So you're not helping nobody. You're just a consumer. That is such a way to, I think, just as travel writing does and the travel world does, is to lull us to sleep and make us feel better of this whole dynamic. Um, that we are taking advantage of, that a lot of us are still marginalized by in, in these ways. No one is just like, this person has power and this person doesn't. But um, in travel, it is so very stark that I think the function of of travel writing historically and of now and of travel culture is to take that whole violent colonial project and and extract it the fun and the sun and the leisure out of it and the, and the escape and the wanderlust and of it all as if it's completely separate. The fun side, the nice side, the pretty side enables the whole project to continue.
0: hmm hmm yeah, I hear you. And just so many memories popping up and thinking about how that relates to yeah, experiences I had growing up, and and now, and you know, one thing that you mentioned was the um, the spiritual tourism, and I'm curious to ask you about the phenomenon of what might be seen as more alternative modes of travel, like say ecotourism or humanitarian travel and volunteerism or spiritual tourism. You know, different from, of course, all-inclusive cruises, these are often sold as more authentic experiences under the guise of spiritual enlightenment or doing good or personal exploration. But of course, they too often revolve entirely around consumption. I recall you also framing this as heritage tourism, where a price is put on one's proximity to indigeneity and indigenous cultures. So I'm wondering how... Are these trends currently manifesting in this decade? And in the case of spiritual tourism, what happens when sacred sites, rituals, or medicines are maintained only as fetishized products to meet the tourist's demands?
1: Well, I don't think that spiritual traditions of indigenous folks and those cosmologies and how they're um, relating to them now are completely You know for the other a lot of it can be taken but folks still hold on to things for themselves Um, It's just not the same completely out of context I look at ayahuasca, which I've written about in the context of spiritual tourism and How when I talk to folks again, you know BIPOC as well who are not from the Amazon? I am not either. I don't have you know roots there to my knowledge. My family is from the coast of Ecuador Um, And you know, I want to focus more on the Ecuadorian Amazon, which is what I know most about people will have this life-changing experience and I don't and that's valid that um, I can't tell you what your experience is but it's just this told as this cure-all you know my time living in Ecuador and and if I you know have engaged with tourists or like maybe Argentinians and and their whole like just weed smoking dreadlocked or you know we can call them mats they're not actually dreads um their their whole you know scene as like, you don't need pills, Bonnie, you know, with your disabilities, you know, ayahuasca will, will, will cure you, or ayahuasca or nothing, in, in some different words that, that folks use in different, uh, uh, you know, indigenous groups in, in the Amazon. You know, it's completely seeing it out of context as this life-saving, it's ableist, right, this life-saving, you know, con, con, you know product, Um, When it's really just when you talk to folks who are from there, you know, it's you can do it habitually. It is definitely spiritual. You're not separating, you know, the spiritual natural world from the quote unquote modern world. Like, it's not supposed to be a cure all. It's a way to uh, communicate with the Amazon, particularly, I think, uh, trees and plants. And That is not what people are getting They want to save their own lives and their own souls, you know, maybe and again, I don't want to invalidate people's experiences, you know, my mother died, or I'm depressed or work sucks. So I'm going to go far away and and take something else from the ground, have someone mix it up, have this super authentic experience with a shaman or a curandera, Um, usually what people just think are shamans. And um that is gonna like save my life. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna, you know, tell everyone else that this is the cure. But it's just the trend for now. You know, it it just that's what it is right now, or maybe even five years ago, and then it just keeps changing. Um, so that extraction is horrible for the earth. It's horrible for the Amazon. The Amazon is suffering. Why would anyone continue to go there and be a tourist? And you know, full disclosure, I've done ayahuasca after so much of this internal kind of um conversation as well as external with, you know, my indigenous friends who are Amazonian and being there and seeing how that market works and what my place would be within it as someone who, again, has, you know, roots from the coast um, or, you know, is from, is from the coast of Ecuador and uh, and taking part of that. Um, also, there, you know, this conversation just with myself of just not being ready to kind of do something like that. Um, but yeah it's just for you so how are you going to get well how are you going to heal how do any of us heal through harm you know so it's just it's just this really basic way of of seeing other people's medicines and thinking that the cure for your you know what was called you know first world problems and i'll use it in this context is hidden in someone's forest far away rather than again where is the the land that you're on you know there's healing things all over the place and maybe what needs to be healed is whiteness itself i mean decolonization for white people is is more about reconnecting to your humanity that was taken through the project of, of white supremacy i mean you cannot hold on to that humanity when you you know be, steal land um, harm people have them you know force them into labor and extract that capital from their labor um, so when you have folks perform their culture for others, uh, for foreigners, it it takes it out of context for themselves and it puts a dollar sign on it and it's something to be consumed and that is really gross. For me, I don't think anyone should be using Palo Santo if that's not part of your culture. I think social justice, cool, alternative healing, justice people think it's cool as well um and, and sage as well over harvested crystals are unethically sourced a lot of the time i mean this is about all of us right and even how yoga itself completely taken out of context a cure-all you know this this whole eastern medicine thing i mean if you're in the west and you're western i mean it's western medicine i mean we're acting like science hasn't been you know proven these things about ayahuasca and proven things about acupuncture and ayurveda and all these things so so putting this really kind of western and orientalist you know, view on what healing is and what medicine actually is, um, is just basic. It doesn't serve what I think is the purported intention of healing and having connection to oneself and to one's earth. We can only truly heal um, through decolonization is how I feel, that healing through place and with land and with ourselves. Um, So maybe folks are running away from whiteness and want to cure from whiteness itself and the privileges it brings, which they may find oppressive. And go to a forest somewhere and do this, but you're really just continuing to take. It's it's not connecting you to your, your humanity, your your humanity. It's just causing more harm. And how does that heal you? And how does that heal anyone else? Um, because if we're doing this, it's really selfish. It's just I'm doing it for me. So you know, kind of whatever happens to anyone else, I'm just not really going to think about it or their culture or their land. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do it for me. I'm going to leave. And that is not the point with, of a lot of these um, spiritual traditions. It's more about connection. And if you don't have any kind of connection to the land that you're, you know, of that place that you're going to, you're going to take something from it. You're going to use it for yourself. I mean, there's a word for that. <laughs> so um, I think a lot, of, a lot is lost to those cultures, as well as to the people who I think want to um, heal through them. It's just not really happening. I think it's a social placebo effect.
0: This conversation really does challenge me to think about the legacy and impacts of the physical journeys of settlers and how people in the West have really benefited from, quote, seeing the world. But that action has opened up a Pandora's box where in places and people have become commodified for consumption. And there's no reciprocity in that. So I'd like us to sort of explore and challenge this notion that wisdom can be extracted from so-called other places without ramifications. And how can one make reparations for the long-lasting effects of spiritual tourism?
1: Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to people creating social currency over having the access to travel, um, is like I was saying before with you know the stamps and a passport you know it's I didn't really I haven't really gone into the erotics or the sexualization of a lot we're talking about land and women and femmes and, and all these things and the message that travel read media kind of exports um, it's a very sexualized one and a very kind of erotic one and I think people can't satiate they they can't um, hold themselves back from that kind of entitlement And that is, you know, inherent in whiteness and settler colonialism. It's just, as I was saying before, you buy a ticket, then you have the right to do whatever you want in that place. Um, There's all-inclusive consent, right? So uh, going somewhere, especially for, I would say, especially for white men or like white people, it's something you can put on your resume. Like you're worldly, you've traveled, like, wow, you've seen the world. You're like a different person. It just makes you better. You know, what is that other quote? You know? those who don't travel, like have only read one page of the book, you know what I mean? And it's like, nah, you know, people who don't travel might have like a better connection to their place, which it's amazing, you know, knowing your community, you know, uh, being in solidarity with people around you. I mean, this was the kind of year for folks who maybe weren't already doing that to do that, to really like, who are my neighbors? You know, who are the the native folks in the place I'm in? Where are they and what can I do for them Um, as far as, you know, More of like earning my place and on this land um, or doing what I can (laughs) to help them, you know, to the goal of uh, decolonization and self determination as far as again land taxes go and and other things. Um, So yeah, we see how travel is used to bolster one's brand, Um, but as far as, you know, reciprocity when it comes to spiritual tourism, you know, this is what I'm saying. I think before we even go somewhere, we have to have that conversation with ourselves and with each other and with people who are from that place. Um, because you don't have to go far away to know how people may be living or to hear their stories. You know, people there's Native folks all over social media who can tell you exactly, you know, what is up. Um, And you can read books and you can watch movies and there's people in your community who I promise and and not everywhere, right? I mean, I'm from Queens. There's people from all over the world here, but Who are you have access to talking to people even in in English, you know who are from all these places? You don't have to go somewhere so far and then be like, how can I help once I'm here? We have to have that conversation before we go and I know a lot of folks want um, to know what to do once we go somewhere um, and i think a, a lot of part of, of my work and and the, just the voice i want to have in this conversation is don't or think about not going at all um think about how this mass migration of white folks to bipoc you know historically or majority bipoc land. and that's a that's i'm i'm like drawing this you know really black and white thing but it it is kind of black and white how is that kind of lead to anything positive you know when white folks have traveled in mass it always is just not a good thing (laughs) it doesn't bode it doesn't it's not it's not great for local folks uh in in this general way talking about colonization and such right um so you know the more folks more white folks go to a place if you even look at you know crown heights 15 years ago to how it is now more white people come it just becomes more safer and more welcoming to um again i'm singling out white folks and whiteness to go somewhere once a white person is there, and it just grows and grows and grows, and that's how we see the tourist zones and the tourist ghettos and the expat enclaves that completely, you know, create their own suburban worlds and their own, you know, beach uh, towns somewhere far away. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm just saying that we're if we're doing that, we're just adding to those problems, and I'd rather that not happen when it comes to spiritual tourism, as far as, you know, reciprocity and reparations go, I mean, again, I think it's withholding. I think it's less like, how about not take it all rather than take in a way that um, may be a, a little bit better than the way I wasn't. I don't know if that's what you're talking about, but I, I do feel reparations need to be paid. I mean, I think that all of us can have, and there's very concrete ways, um, you know, Parts of our, our, our bank accounts, you know, just for like paying, you know, black folks back and, and, you know, there are projects like I'm saying to pay, pay reparations and to pay land tax to original folks um, to do that where exactly where we are right now, because that's the most important. So I might not know what that answer is, as far as you know, what can people do once they're there rather than you know, other than just not doing it. Um, maybe I, I shouldn't actually go through with this plan that I had to to have this experience when it comes to spiritual tourism or, you know, how, um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it just has to do with, you know, going to the right place and paying the right people sometimes rather than a white owned, you know, resort. Um, and you know, again, you know, how much are people getting paid? You know, how can you tell those owners, um, maybe that's not enough, you know, learn about what the minimum wage is in a place. And, and again, are people doing contract labor? Um, are they getting a salary? you know, how far do they have to travel to actually come to this place? Can they afford for their kids to go to school? You know, all these things um, I'm taking from them. And I don't even know if they have enough in their own place to have these things that I'm taking advantage of when I go far. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a little bit of a conversation rather than uh, an answer that I have for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much there. And I really appreciate all the places you took us in our mind and, and just, yeah, really asking the folks who are listening to sit with the complexity of travel and don't just go about our lives without considering all of the ramifications and, and ways of being in better relationship with the world. Because I think ultimately All of us tuning in—that's what we want. We want to be in right relationship, and this is such a huge sector that we really can't ignore. It's not just flying on planes, and it's—it's not just the um. Gosh, I could I could kind of go on with it's not just the like dot 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 dot. Here's a long list, but um, yeah, I really appreciate the time that we were able to spend today, and start to deep dive into the world of travel.
1: That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. I just wanna shout out uh, Dr. Anu Taranath. I mean, just just from that one thing you said, I can share so many authors and resources and websites and stuff. But her book, Beyond Guild Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World, is probably something that I think your listeners would be interested in. And you just touched on just being uncomfortable. Let's do it. It's okay. You know, we can have these conversations with ourselves first and you know, become kind of develop our palate (laughs) for this and and our language for it and our fluency in it. um, Right, really, by just sitting with ourselves, which again, I think is something that we should take advantage of more this year, rather than just fighting it and fighting it. I know it's hard, but we need to be able to sit with ourselves in the discomfort in order to have this. Um, And that kind of hostility or defensiveness towards looking at our privilege and our power is not Um, you know, the most beneficial neither is guilt. That's why her book is called beyond guilt trips So let's sit in it together be honest be transparent Not be like these people are bad and these people are good, but like this is all problematic You know, how can I bring my full self to the experience of being alive where I am? I know it's very general and very vast, but that's That is decolonizing travel culture and that's why I like to, uh write about it and think in this world because travel is basically everything it ties everything together so um yeah thank you so much for letting me you know rant in in all these little different zones that and that are entry points into this conversation and yeah thank you so much for inviting me and for your time
0: thank you for listening to for the wild podcast the music you heard today was by Juan Doragoza, Peels, and the Fabian Almasan trio. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassbell.